0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of John, chapter 12, verses 23 through 26 this morning. Greet those of our friends in Columbus, glad you're joining us today, and also our friends in the overflow room. We also have about 200 folks who are down in Brown County today completing the marriage retreat, and had a wonderful time with them uh, the last two days talking about the five P's of person, partner, parent, parishioner, and provider. And God did some wonderful things while we were together. And look forward to hearing how the Lord uses that time and the lives of our marriages moving forward. Today we're in John chapter 12, which obviously is not the book of Colossians. And we're taking a two-week break from Colossians. We'll be back into it two weeks from now. And uh, the point of why we're doing this today is to focus our hearts on the upcoming missions conference and to set our minds towards what we have in store for us next weekend. So John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. Follow along, please, as, uh, as I read. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Will honor him. Father, we ask you today to open our minds to the high call of following Jesus. We pray that we would understand this this morning in fresh and new ways, that we would see that the call to follow Jesus is really a relentless and risky choice every day to die. To die to ourselves, our agenda, our ideas, our expectations, our hopes, our dreams. And then to let you redefine our future, our present, Lord, our expectations. That at the end of the day, it is following Jesus that becomes the ultimate reference point for our lives. Lord, I pray that today might be a day when you will take down the last hindrance or hurdle from someone who would decide that my life needs to be given to full-time missions. Or maybe, Lord, you tear down the hurdle that exists between reaching out to a neighbor who's from a different background in life, a different culture, or maybe just reaching out to a hurting child at school, or a boy or a girl in our kids' church ministry who need to be loved on in new ways with new people. So, Lord, however you desire to apply the relentless and risky Christ-like love that I believe you're calling us to today, would you make it clear and evident and unleash an army of people who will choose to be like Christ in new ways today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So next weekend is our missions conference. And I wanted this morning to help us begin to turn the spotlight towards that conference. George Verwer from um, Operation Mobilization is going to be here beginning Friday evening. And uh, then we have things going all out throughout, happening all throughout the weekend, and including a um, thing on Saturday evening and also Sunday morning where you'll be able to go to various classrooms throughout the ministry and hear some of the things that are happening through the Ministry of College Parks, uh, Missions, Emphasis, and Global Outreach. And our aim for that is for you to be able to find one of those regions, one of our strategic partners, and that you would pick as a family a partner. And the idea with that is that you would really personally find some way to engage by either prayer or maybe going on a vision trip or writing a missionary or maybe giving financially to find some way for you to be able to connect in a personal and practical way into one of our strategic partners. As I talked with Nate about the upcoming um, missions outreach and the whole focus of our missions conference, I I asked him if it would be a good idea, and I felt like it would be, to take a Sunday prior to that missions conference and just to share with you um, what I think is an important and compelling vision of what missions should be and could be in the hearts of individual believers. Missions at College Park is an important part of the fabric of our ministry, and this morning what I want to do is I want to take a um, condensed exegetical analysis of John 12, and I want to apply it through a biographical sermon on the life of Amy Carmichael. And the reason that I do that is for three reasons. One, I want to remind us that missions work is simply an extension of following Jesus. So we're not talking about anything that's different than the core mission of College Park Church. Igniting a passion to follow Jesus translates into foreign missions. I also, secondly, want to be able to help us to get a a specific application through the life of a real missionary. In other words, I want you to see the way in which one person embraced the call to follow Jesus and how she worked it out with the idea of you in your world figuring out how you're going to work it out. And for some of you, that may mean that today is a day where you need to decide definitively that, look, we need to be open to leaving family and home in the United States and maybe heading to a foreign mission field. Others of you may need to determine in your heart of hearts that, look, we need to find some way to engage in what God is doing in a global view. Others of you need to find ways to to love someone in a risky and relentless way, to find hard people and serve them and minister to them. Some of us, some of you, live, frankly, way too safe lives. And the third thing is I want to make missions personal. I want you to be able to see it through the lens of a of a person like Amy Carmichael who figured out how to take the glory of Christ and translate it into her world and into her culture. And what I want to be able to do is help you remember some of the truths that we're going to talk about this morning by a lengthy illustration of her life. Now, the reality is is that most of you remember illustrations far better than you do points of a sermon anyways, right? (laughs) That's that's just a fact of the matter. Uh, You remember duct tape and, you know... Um, skiing behind a boat and things like that much more than what the specific sermon was even about and that's okay in fact that's the value of a story it helps us to remember things over the long haul and this morning what i want to do while doing service to john 12 i want to be able to take an extended time to illustrate this in amy carmichael's life to show you how one person could work it out and hopefully inspire you to be able to work it out in your life as well You know, the reality is that the call to follow Jesus is filled with all sorts of great and compelling contrasts. In fact, if you read the Bible, sometimes the Bible just sounds a bit weird. Things like, the first shall be last, from Mark 10. Or, the least shall be the greatest, from Luke 9. Or, the poor will inherit the kingdom. Or, Luke 6, beware when all men speak well of you. See, the thing is that Jesus says things that seem to be contrasting with the real world in which we live, because it seems like the the first are the first. They're not they are the greatest. And Jesus says, No, it's the last who are the greatest. And then Paul picks it up even further and he says things like this I mean, this is weird stuff. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians three twenty one. Or 2 Corinthians 12.10, I take pleasure in infirmities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's weird. I know it's familiar, but if you're reading that for the first time and you've never heard that, that's a strange thing to say. I delight in infirmities. Yes, pain. What's he saying? He's saying that weakness creates an opportunity for the power of Christ to reside and flow in and through me. 2 Corinthians 12:15 regarding ministry, listen to this. Paul said to the church at Corinth, The more I love you, the less I am loved. You ever felt like that? The more you love a friend, the more you pour out your life, the more you love that group of people, the less you feel like you're loved in return. And how do you keep loving and loving and loving when that's the case? Answer, you focus your heart and life on what it means to follow Christ who calls all of us to die. 2 Corinthians 4.12, death, Paul says, is working in us, but life in you. Death is working in us, but life in you. So there's this idea that there are these compelling contrasts that are always happening in the Bible. Uh, Down is up, and up is down, and death produces life, and saving your life means you lose it, but losing your life means you find it. That's just weird if you don't understand Jesus. So what you see here is that To be a follower of Christ results in a a call to be radically different, to to live by a whole different value set. And following Jesus includes some tough things, like dying, dying to self, letting Christ live in and through us, uh, yielding your rights, uh, deciding that you don't run your own life that Jesus does. A young woman in the United States was considering becoming a missionary, so she wrote to the well-known missionary Amy Carmichael, and she asked her about what missionary life was like. Her simple question was this, Amy, what is it like to be a missionary? What's it like to be a missionary? And Amy responded with this quote, missionary life is simply a chance to die. I love that. It's a beautiful summary of what it means to follow Jesus, that missionary life, and for that matter, the Christian life, is simply a relentless call to come and die. See how radical that is? It means that you don't have to die, it means that you get to do You get to die. It means that you're called to die. You're called to follow Jesus. And so as as we think about what missions needs to be at College Park and how you can individually engage in the the work of ministry that's happening through our our missions program, this morning I want to remind you that missions isn't just about foreign service. It's not just about different people groups. That at the core of missions is this collective commitment across the board in our church ministry that God is glorified by the self-sacrificing, deep commitment and daily death of his servants. Meaning that Jesus calls us to sacrifice to die and when we do so we live vicariously through him. It means that we give up the expectations of what our life was going to be like and we yield our lives and put them in the master's hands. For some of you it may look like determining that The Lord wants you on a foreign field. For others of you, it would mean that you would decide, look, this year, 2009, we need to take a vision trip and go and see and experience. For others of you, it means investing your life in that neighbor kid who you just can't stand. Or it means going back into your home today at lunch and pouring your life into a child who, man, you think he was born on Mars, right? It means pouring your life into an unsaved neighbor or a child who seems to be on the outskirts of life and culture. It could be any level of sacrifice. My call this morning is for us to ask ourselves, so where does Jesus want you to die? Where does he want you to lay down your life? Where does he want you to do something risky and relentless in the cause of Christ? Now, John chapter 12 is an interesting chapter. We find it in the midst of John's presentation of the life of Jesus. He's less than a week away from crucifixion. He's spending some time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he had just raised from the dead. It's during this section in Scripture that Jesus' feet is anointed by Mary and Judas, you know, makes some sort of pseudo-religious statement that the money should have been sold and given to the poor like he had any concern for the poor. The next day, Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and in this moment, the people will line the streets, throw their coats on the streets, and take palm branches, and say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are swelling in their enthusiasm that here is Jesus who's coming, and the Pharisees are in a panic, because Jesus' poll numbers are going through the roof. He's popular. He's riding the crest of, of growing popularity in the land. And what's interesting, sort of at the pinnacle of Jesus' popularity, he says some things that are just horribly unpopular. In the midst of all of the swirl of the success and the momentum, Jesus says something that seems to be contradictory with this, this, this ascension into power. And the reason that this is so important is because Jesus never lived for the crowds or for popularity he lived for the glory of the father and there are four things that we see in this text of what jesus says the first one in verse 23 is this that god's purposes are always good look at what he says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified glorified think of that for a moment glorified the hour has come he's going to be executed So Jesus attaches two words together that don't seem to go real well together, crucified and glorified. And if you're a disciple of Christ in the midst of John chapter 12, those two terms do not go together. Instead, crucified and cursed, those go together. But what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us is that God's purposes are always good. Meaning that God can take even the most horrible thing like crucifixion and use it for his ends, his outcome, and the very definitive work that he intends to accomplish. Jesus knew that the cross was a path of glorification. He knew that he could take the cross, embrace it, and that the Father would use it for his divine and sovereign purposes. So, verse 23 first tells us that God's purposes are always good. The Son of Man is going to be glorified and glorified through the crucifixion. Secondly, Jesus tells us that dying leads to life. I love this verse. I say to you, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. And what Jesus does is he uses a seed metaphor to describe his own body. He uses the seed falling into the earth and he says unless the seed goes into the earth and dies, it remains alone and it's not fruitful, meaning that his body will be put into the earth and because of his death, burial and resurrection, there will be phenomenal spiritual fruit that will be born. And the principle is, is that Jesus lays before us this idea that dying leads to life. And to put it in spiritual categories, it means that those people who choose to lay down their life in the name of Christ and choose to make much of Christ while making little of themselves are the very ones who God exalts. He humbles the proud, but He exalts the humble. Dying leads to life. The call to be a disciple of Christ is a continual call to embrace death. Third, the text tells us in verse 25 that we're to live by a different value set. Verse 25 says, whoever loves his life loses it. I mean, look at that. Whoever holds on to his life and cherishes it and holds on to his stuff and his person and his reputation and his career and his family and guards it and hides it and and hoards it and protects it, Jesus says, that man loses his life. And whoever hates his life in this world, Meaning whoever looks at his life and realizes this isn't what I live for, I don't live for this world, I live for the next, will keep it eternally. You see, there are some people in this world who live to protect themselves. They don't ever want to get hurt. They never take any risk for God. Their motto is safe, 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 safe. And the result is they do very little. And some of you know very little about what it means to take any risk for the kingdom of God. You only talk to the people you're familiar with. You only do ministries that you're convinced that you can be successful at. You would hardly ever take a risk. You don't give, especially when the stock market's taking a nosedive. And the reality is you've not known risk. And because you've not known risk... You've not known what it means to really trust. And when you've not known what it means to really trust, listen, you don't know what it means to really live. And the final thing is that people who know Jesus follow him. Even when it means to death, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be. Jesus, it says, it's rather simple. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you serve Jesus, then you got to follow Him. If you say you believe in Him, you should become like Him. That means that what Jesus does, you need to model. Jesus said to His disciples, men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And He says, this is how I loved you, so this is how you ought to love each other. That Jesus gives us this beautiful example of how we are to live. In, in, In Hebrews it says that He, looking unto Jesus, the writer says, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So the cross and the path to it becomes a model of how we are to live, willing to lay down our lives and to pursue the glory of the Father, live like him, talk like Jesus, and even die like him. And Jesus' point is this, if you know me, you will follow me. So put this now in our 21st century American context, so much of this just seems absolutely backwards of our normal way in which we live, doesn't it? We self-protect, we manage risk, we weigh our options, we set our boundaries, and it's not that I'm necessarily against any of those, but here's the problem. Sometimes self-protection becomes the end game, and the reality is we don't know what it means to really follow Christ and do something risky for Him. And the real reason is that we are more concerned about us than we are about the glory of God. Enter Amy Carmichael. Here is a young woman who makes a decision to do something relentless and risky for the glory of God. She was a Christian missionary to the people of Japan and India. She was born in 1867, died in 1951. She was a missionary for 55 years without a furlough. Now, I don't recommend that, (laughs) but that's what she did. Because Amy Carmichael was cut out of a different fabric. She's best known for two things. One, she's known for the Donover Fellowship, uh, an organization that she developed with a group of women who had a a burden and and a mission to do something for the glory of God. And these women gathered and did something that impacted the country of India in a powerful and special way. She's also known for writing over 35 books. And it was her writing ministry, the the uncapping of her heart, through which we see how she thinks about God and suffering and difficulty and children. And it's through her writing that we get a glimpse of her soul. She was born in Northern Ireland to David and Catherine Carmichael, who were deeply committed Scottish Presbyterians. She was the oldest of seven children, and tragically, when she was in her teenage years, her father died. And God providentially caused a relationship to develop with a man named Robert Wilson who would become her unofficially adopted father. And Robert Wilson became this surrogate father to her, and in God's providence, she was now connected with a man who would be the co-founder of the Keswick Convention. How many of you know what the Keswick Convention is? Let me see your hands. Okay, a few of you. The Keswick Convention was a movement, sweeping movement, in the country of England, which emphasized a teaching often called the deeper life teaching. In certain ways, it was characterized by some solid biblical teaching. These people went hard after the person and work of Christ. They really focused on trying to figure out how to grow in likeness. As many movements do, it kind of swung too far in one direction and some of the teaching that came out of the Keswick Convention was that you could somehow achieve a level of sinlessness, an extreme view or an entire sanctification. Regardless of that problematic understanding of sanctification, the Keswick Convention did some wonderful things in terms of spurning people on to get serious about their relationship with Jesus. You've probably even sung a song that they've written, Like a River Glorious is God's Perfect Peace. That's a Keswick Convention hymn. But the beautiful thing that happened with the Keswick Convention was not only this igniting a passion within uh, Amy Carmichael's heart to really understand who Jesus is and to follow him with relentless abandonment, it was also that there was another person who was involved in the Keswick Convention whose name you will very well know. J. Hudson Taylor. And it was at the Keswick Convention and that environment that Amy Carmichael came in contact with Hudson Taylor. And to know anything about Hudson Taylor is to be deeply impressed with his godliness, his vision, his faith, his prayer. Hudson Taylor sent thousands of people into China and other regions of the world because of his unbelievable vision for global missions and the glory of God and the person of Christ. And it was that in this convention that Amy Carmichael was able to rub shoulders to know a man and be inspired by J. Hudson Taylor. And isn't it interesting that often our lives are impacted not just by information that we hear or sermons that we hear, but by people whose lives we're able to watch. The beauty of Jesus coming in the form of a man is that he incarnates the very will of God in our world. And the reality is that my life, and I suspect yours, is not marked by necessarily a book or a sermon, but it's marked more by people who showed you how to be able to take truth and live it out. Because we need the gospel with skin on. We need Christlikeness lived out in shoe leather. We need to see how people live and watch them to know how we ought then to live. And what God gave Amy Carmichael was a beautiful gift in the inspiration of a man like Hudson Taylor. Her life early on was secondly shaped by a growing passion before she ever became a missionary to reach disenfranchised and outcast children. In her late teenage years, Amy developed a burden for some children who were called shawleys. The reason they were called shawleys was because they were factory girls, and before the advent of child labor laws and everything else, these impoverished children were trying to eke out a living for their family, and so they would work in factories, often in horrid conditions, and they were so poor they didn't have hats to wear to church. And so instead they would put shawls over their heads, and thus people with a derogatory tone gave them the name shawleys, because they didn't own hats. Amy developed a burden to reach these girls and began to figure out how to be able to minister to them, trying to figure out how to bring them into the church. And as so often happens, respectable church people wanted nothing to do with these ragamuffin children. Who knew what maybe they said, things like, they make the carpet dirty, or they're too loud, or they're, they're, they're too boisterous. They run in church. God forbid they should run in church, right? And what happened is that they they didn't want anything to do with these children because they were crude, they were unorthodox, and here's, here's a criticism, when they gathered together, the children even prayed out loud all at once simultaneously, right? I guess we did that every once in a while, don't we? The people in Amy's church resisted the work and you can imagine the, the dying of what it must have felt like when she brought these needy children to church only to see church people with furrowed brows and arms crossed watching every move that she has made and criticizing the children at every step and eventually the ministry grew to 300 children. In fact, it grew so large, the church building wasn't big enough to hold them anymore. And the ministry to the children just about eclipsed the ministry of the church. And so Amy had to find a, a new building to be able to house her children. And is so often the case, a person's burden to reach disenfranchised people grows and the church isn't able to deal with it, so it has to go outside of the church ministry. Amy continued this ministry with these shawly children. And eventually the merger of this ministry with these children and the Keswick Convention experience began to merge into a definitive call of God. She began to sense that God was calling her to foreign missions. He, he, she sensed that God was calling her to take what she was doing in her local church and do it on a, on a broader scale. To, to, to go to the foreign mission field. He, something was birthed within her in desire to teach people about the gospel. And she began to share this with her family and friends. And you ever had it that you share with family or friends, the closest people around you, what's going on in your heart, and sometimes they're the people who just simply don't get it? You share with them something that's going on inside of your soul, and the reality of you doing what God seems to be calling you to do means that there's going to be some pain in their life, and oftentimes some of the hardest people to convince that it is certainly the will of God are family and friends. Not that you shouldn't listen to their counsel, but that can be a very painful moment when you realize that family and friends just don't understand. In the midst of that season, Amy wrote this. This is the words of a a person whose heart is breaking because of the rejection and fear of having a family not understand your calling. She writes, He who had led will lead all through the wilderness. He who hath fed will surely feed. He who hath heard thy cry will never close his ear. He who hath marked thy faintest sigh will not forget thy tear. He loveth always, faileth never, so rest on him today forever. She's talking about the pain of trying to figure out the call of God in light of the lack of understanding from her own family. Some of you know what it's like to die this death. You go Christmas and Thanksgiving, you go to birthday parties, and the people in your own family don't understand why you are so stinking radical in love with Jesus. They think you're in a cult. <laughs> you bring your Bible with you. You, you sing songs. You, 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 you love Christ. You raise your hands. You, you, you study the word. Or maybe you know someone who, who names the name of Christ, they're in their family, and, and their level of Christianity and where you're at are just so remarkably different, and they just don't understand, and you leave those moments thinking, this is so hard, why doesn't my own family understand my burden? He loveth always and faileth never, so rest on him today forever. On March 3, 1893, Amy set sail for the Far East. At first, thinking that God was calling her to Japan, she boarded a boat, headed off to ministry in that country. She wrote this, My life on the human side was broken, and it was never mended again. But listen to this, But he, meaning Jesus, has been enough. See, here's the problem. When you never take any risk for the glory of God and the person and the work of Christ, you will never know that Jesus is sufficient. No risks equals no understanding that he can be sufficient. And when God strips you of all that you have or friends and families don't understand or you're pursuing a risky pursuit for the glory of God, it's then you learn the sweet savor of the sufficiency of Christ. When God kicks out the props from your life and you wonder, how are we going to do it? That's when you learn the sweet taste of the sufficiency of the person of Christ. Like Moses said, Or Moses is described in Hebrews chapter 11, that he learned to live on him who is invisible. Amy's first ministry overseas was in Japan, and she ministered in that country for only 15 months. Struggled to learn the language, the customs, and it was in Japan that Amy learned one of her most valuable lessons and one that would mark her ministry for years to come. When she first arrived in Japan, she refused to dress in the um, appearance of the Japanese women she wanted to keep her western dress and unless you think that that's a dying that's not a big deal to die to there's there's something deeply connected to the clothing you wear related to your identity and who you are and she's now going to be in this culture and dress like japanese women and she would have none of it and so instead she wore her standard western garb and one day she was sharing christ with a japanese woman and in the course of that conversation, she got right to the, the, the punchline, so to speak, of the gospel presentation, was just about ready to invite her to receive Christ and to, to draw her into the, the very decision point for the gospel. And at that moment, the woman interrupted her and began asking her about her fancy western gloves she was wearing. And the moment for the gospel was lost because of this woman's fascination with what she was wearing. Amy left home, left that home. And went home in tears, realizing that she was risking so much the presentation of the gospel for so little, her appearance. And from that day forward, Amy made the decision to dress like the people she served. And that decision to yield her rights and to die to self in her outward appearance became the hallmark pattern of her ministry. And every picture you will see from this point forward shows her in native Indian dress. Amy couldn't remain in Japan because of a health issue which was exacerbated by the climate, and so she had to find a different place to serve. So she goes to Japan thinking, this is where I'm going to serve and use my gifts and calling, and God closes the door. Ever had him do that to you? I call it the dark side of the will of God. That moment when you wonder, did I make a mistake? Did God make a mistake? What's going on? Because I don't see this as very clear, and we had great expectations and ideas of what we could do for you, and God sometimes says, no, we're going to do something different. And the moment between knowing what you're going to do and where you are is the dark side of His will. That's a long boat ride from Japan, discerning what in the world is God doing. God providentially, though, sent her to the country of India, where her most long-lasting and legacy-building work would take root. In the 1900s, India was still under British authority. There was an oppressive caste system that was a part of the culture. And that caste system determined your future and your faith. Listen, if you married outside of the caste or if you chose beliefs outside of your family's faith, if you were to embrace a relationship with Christ, it would mean certain rejection, potentially even persecution, as you broke from the caste. So Amy Carmichael is moving into a region of the world that is not receptive to the gospel, and there's enormous cost for those who would name the name of Christ, and yet she was undaunted, believed that God had called her there, and began the the work of figuring out what would God want her to do in that land. When Amy would present Christ to someone, and when they would receive Christ, some would take root and remain over the long haul, and some would simply fall away. And in the midst of that, Amy got to know other missionaries in the land. And as you'll see, Amy can be rather pointed in her language. She's so risky and radical that at times she doesn't understand how other people live in their call to follow Christ. She writes this, Oh, to be delivered from half-hearted missionaries. (laughs) She says, don't mean, don't come if you mean to turn aside for anything. Don't come if you haven't made up your mind to live for one thing, the winning of souls. Obedience to Christ meant an utter abandonment in Amy's life for everything. In a word, she was a radical woman. She loved this prayer. Lord, do thou turn me all into love and all my love into obedience, and let my obedience be without interruption. I want to call some of you this morning to start praying that. Let my obedience be without interruption. We need some radical women who want obedience without interruption. We need some radical men whose desire would be, I want to be radical without, or or want to be obedient without interruption. She saw life through a lens of this relentless and risky love. She was passionate for the person and work of Christ. And she would often say this to people who were considering coming to India. How's this for a recruiting tool? She would say to people, don't come unless you can say to the Lord and to us, the cross is the only attraction. The cross is the only attraction. You know what? We need people who enter ministry, enter pastoral ministry, enter ministry to children, enter ministry to teenagers, enter ministry to our inner city, enter ministry in India, in China, in the Caspian, whose commitment is this. The cross is the only attraction. Here's why. Because at the end of the day, when times get tough, and life doesn't turn out the way that you expected, or people begin, or you figure out that sheep bite, right, in the church... What keeps you going? What keeps you in the fight? You know what keeps you in the fight? It is that the cross is the only attraction. It is that my pursuit and my love in life is to focus on the cross of Christ, and He's why I got into this, and as long as I can magnify and glorify Him, that's the end product and that's the goal. Here's something else that she would say to people thinking of coming to India. Bring to India a strong sense of humor and no sense of smell. (laughs) <laughs> in fact, she was, so, she was so radical at times that she wrote books about her missionary life and she sent them to the publishers back in America who sent them back telling her they were too depressing and realistic, right? <laughs> when you can write books that help people go to the mission field, Amy, send us those. After a few years of ministry in India, Amy providentially stumbled across what would become her life's work she noticed that there were children who were a part of the Hindu temples. She discovered, much to her dismay, that in these temples were young women and children who were considered married to the gods and were doomed to horrible abuse. It was cultic prostitution. Young children, girls, and and later she discovered even boys, Because people didn't know what to do with these children were brought to the temple thinking that they were being left in the safe care of these people who were supposed to be religious leaders only to find out that they were used in human trafficking. And she determined that something needed to be done about that. There was a fire lit up within her to do something to address this problem. And therefore she founded the Donovan Fellowship which was a group of missionary women whose aim was simply to rescue these temple children to find ways to to rescue them from either getting there or to get them out, if they ran away, to give them safe harbor. And she discovered that these children were brought to the temples for a variety of reasons. It could be anything from an unwanted pregnancy, a baby that had been born that nobody wanted, or an out-of-caste relationship or a family custom or somehow people thought they were doing their, their family a religious service by giving their child in queue and you imagine then these children are, are in this life of horrible abuse and there's no way for them to get out and Amy and her missionaries would quietly search for children that they could rescue and then raise and then win them to Christ and can you imagine if you were one of these children whose life was stuck in trapped and bondage and horrible abuse and Amy Carmichael and her missionary women radicals for Christ would come and rescue you now you need to know that this was not what amy wanted to do in fact uh, although the ministry with the shawleys was certainly an effective one her idea was to go to india to be able to preach christ and lead people not to be a mother she was a single woman and her idea was not that she was going to have a home full of children but the reality was that god was directing her to a new area of ministry And she had to die to her expectations of what her ministry was going to be. Have you had that happen? You think you're going to have a career here? And then God says, no, I want you to work with three little kids at home. (laughs) You think you're going to do this for the kingdom? And God says, no, I just want you to wait tables. The death of a vision and an idea of what God wants us to do as matched with what we think we're going to do is sometimes a hard thing to get our minds around and make no mistake about it, when you release that, it is like you are dying. A death of a vision is a painful thing and yet Jesus calls us to say, these are the gifts that I have given you and I have a right to decide where I'm going to use you. You see, signing up to be a follower of Jesus means that you relinquish your right to decide what you're going to do with your life. And you would think that Amy would have received some sort of support or endorsement from the other missionaries in the rescuing of these children, but that was far from the case. The other missionaries thought that she made too much of the blight of the temple children, that she was exaggerating, making a bigger deal about it than what it really was. Others suggested that her efforts to save the children were nothing more than a stunt to try and draw attention to herself. Don't you love it when people do that? Or worse... People had a pessimistic attitude, saying the temple system had been a part of Indian culture for centuries, so what in the world did she think she was going to be able to do about it? But she would not be stopped. One at a time, she found these little girls and rescued them. Sometimes people would bring them to their fellowship. Other times, she would find a woman walking towards the temple, and they would plead with her to give us the child. And the idea is that Amy and her women are are, are rescuing these children as they're being walked to the place that would be their destruction. Years later they would discover that there were boys also involved in temples and the fellowship then changed course and not only ministered to little girls but also little boys and eventually there were over a thousand children in Amy Carmichael's care under the fellowship called Donover and Amy became affectionately known by those children by the name she would have never thought she would have been given. It is the name Amma. It means mother in Hindi. The ministry wasn't easy. Over the years, the Donovan Fellowship faced immense financial hardships, poor facilities, disease, conflict, internal strife, and threats that the government would shut them down. They were always under the pressure of what the next day would bring. And through it all, Amy persevered with a relentless and risky love for these temple kids. And then on October 24, 1931, her life took a turn for the worse. She was visiting a site where they were constructing a new dormitory, and an accident happened. There's a hole that some worker didn't put a board over. And she fell into the hole. She broke her leg, twisted her spine, and the result was an incurable disability. Her health would never be the same. I mean, a hole she falls into, and her ministry is radically altered. And for the next 20 years of her life, she died 20 years later, 1931 to 1951, Amy would never be the same. She's now confined to a bed or a wheelchair, and you might think, well, her ministry is over. Wrong. Because what happened is during this moment, Amy used this season of her life to transform that solitary room, the confinement in her bed, and the confinement to her wheelchair to the most Some of the most penetrating writing from her pen comes through this season. So mark it down somewhere in your mind. When God gives you an opportunity to suffer, that is when some of the clearest thoughts of God can come. Or some of the clearest revelation about how proud you really are. The question is when God drains the bucket to the bottom and he strips you of all of what you have, you will either be left with love for him or rage that he would dare do this to you. And the question is, does he have the right to call you to risky and relentless love that doesn't fit with your plan? Amy, is a, Amy Carmichael is an invalid when she writes, Before the winds that blow do cease, teach me to dwell within thy calm. Before the pain has passed in peace, give me my God to sing a song. Let me not lose the chance to prove the fullness of enabling love. Oh, Lord, do this for me. She's in a wheelchair when she writes this. Maintain a constant victory. So no matter what would come or what would happen Her choice was to say, Lord, help me to maintain a constant victory so that even in her limited physical condition, she found a pathway to impart spiritual life. So to those of you who God has dealt a hard hand, so to speak, in this life, a long-term illness, a, a lifelong disability, you look at missions and you think, what can I do? There's a lot you can do. Or you think, my life hasn't turned out like I thought it would, or the idea of what I wanted to do for God's kingdom has been shut down, it's been temporarily set aside. This is not a season for you to mope or pout or say I'm useless. It's instead for you to say to Christ, Lord, help me to maintain a constant victory. On January 18th, 1951, Amy Carmichael completed her radical and risky ministry to which God had called her, and her funeral was attended by scores of children, little lives that Amy had saved. The children sang at her funeral, all of them rescued by this woman who would not give up and found her place and went after it. On the grounds of Donovan Fellowship to this day, you will find no gravestones no memorial, no big display of Amy's life. Her request was a simple birdbath that marked her grave. And the name on the grave, on the birdbath, is the name Amma. You see, God is glorified in the self-sacrificing daily death of His servants. He's glorified when you and I choose to relinquish our rights to life and say, God, whatever you want from me, whatever purpose you desire, I, I, I choose to release my expectations. It means that we remind ourselves and our hearts that first, God's purposes are always good. Question. Does God have permission to change your plans? Does He have permission to change your life in a way that doesn't fit with what you've expected? Does he have the right to tank your career, make your 401k drop? Does he have the right to make you put into a situation where life doesn't make sense to you? Does he have permission to do that? If not, you won't know what risky and relentless love for him is. Secondly, do you know that dying leads to life? My question is, what is it that God is calling you to die to today? Maybe you got married and thought marriage would be a certain way, but it's turned out to be not what you designed at all. Or you got in, you wanted to have kids, and you realized that when God gave you kids, He gave you vipers and diapers—is what you got. You got wicked, sinful souls running around the house, and you're just like, "What is this? This is not what I signed up for." And He's calling you to die. Some of you ladies spent years getting your education. You had an idea of what your job was going to be, and your cleaning up messy diapers thinking this is what i went to school for this is what my identity is now i'm a cheerio picker-upper and you got to figure out how to do that for the glory of christ and you uh, and this is not i'm not making light of it that is a serious death it's a husband who thinks he should have a particular job but he's passed over for a promotion or can't move up the corporate ladder because he won't sacrifice his character It's a a person who says all I wish is that I could just feel well again and if I could feel well again then I could really make much of my life and God has said no and the question is are you ready to die to that? Third, it means that we live by a different value set. It means that God wants you to have eyes to see the needs that are around you and ask yourself, what do I need to do about these issues? Does someone need to do something to address the needs of these particular children or this particular people group? There, there are there are people in Cambodia today who have been rescued from human trafficking because of your generosity a few years ago with a Christmas offering and somebody had the idea to say, we got to do something about that. And that stuff doesn't just happen. It takes someone to say, look, what about this? And finally, it means that people who know Jesus follow Jesus. It means that for you to say that you're a Christian means that at the end of the day, you've signed up for this belief that Christ is your Savior and that you are now given the chance to live like Him all the time. And you know what that means? It means that missionary life, my friends, is simply a chance to die. Or let me just change that a bit. Perhaps we need to think of it this way, because missionary life is no different than any of our lives. Maybe we should think of it this way, that the Christian life, the Christian life is simply a chance to die. And so we ought to say, however you want me to do that, Lord, I will embrace it. Jesus said, if a man follows me, let him take up his what? Cross. Not his easy chair. Not his bed. Not his comfortable house. He said, take up the cross. To follow Jesus means that we get to die. And so, my friends, I want to call you today to embrace the opportunity that God gives you to die to self and let Christ live in and through you. Lord Jesus, we ask you today to apply both John 12 and the life of Amy Carmichael to our lives in a fresh and penetrating way today. I ask you, Lord, in the very specific things in which you're asking our people today to die to, that they would have just a sense within their heart that it's okay, that I can trust Christ. Christ. I can release my expectations. And I ask you, Lord, to give us the grace that we need to be the kind of people who would say, Lord, I simply want to follow you. Lord, I know that for some folks that's an incredibly risky thing to say. And I ask you to give them the strength and the power to do so. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. After our service, there will be some folks up here at the front. If you need someone to pray with you, they're here ready to help you in any way that they can. Okay? God bless you. Have a great day.